Comic Book Tales is an immersive comic book experience for the new or lapsed comic book fan. I take a closer look at the comics that shaped my childhood and influenced my adulthood. Comic books are an amazing entry into another world and even provide the pictures to complete the fantasy. Join me for a new Comic Book Tales adventure. Hello, 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 and welcome to another Comic Book Tales adventure. Uh, this is part seven of the Marvel um, experience. Uh, so I've talked about Stanley. He's a very influential part of Marvel early on and remains to this day the patriarch of the Marvel family. Uh, I talked about what he's done. Early on in this process, I asked you to suspend what you knew about today to better experience what Marvel was when it began. And if you've been able to do that, you've been successful, hopefully, in understanding how how radically different. I don't use the word radically lightly here because what Marvel did was done out of necessity, was done out of um, was mother necessity for invention. Uh, basically, they had to invent what they were doing because they didn't have a choice. And some of what they did worked, some of what they did didn't work. Uh, and we forget some of those things that didn't work. Uh, they tried to they tried to basically pimp out Spider-Man and make him a pitch man for General Motors, which didn't work. They tried to make him a pitch man. You remember the Spider-Mobile? You probably don't. It was in a couple issues. That was for GM, and it didn't work. It didn't go anywhere because it was the wrong medium for the wrong crowd. Okay? I think Marvel is willing to take somebody's money if you're willing to offer it, but they can't make teenage boys buy GM cars because you put Spider-Man in a car. He swings across the city. Why does he need a car? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And it was kind of a dune buggy looking thing anyway. It, it was just dumb. But it was for merchandising purposes, and it was for purposes of you know promoting GM. So some of those things didn't work. But what Marvel gets a lot of credit for, and, and rightly so, is some of the innovations they came up with, okay? So in the early days, I, I talked about this in the golden age, how it was panels, panel after panel after panel. And if you go back and read any of those golden age comics from any publisher, it doesn't matter who, it's, a, it's, it's three or four panel or strips of panels on a page, and you go to the next page, and it's the same thing. So these tiny little blocks with whatever. Now what Marvel did, and I don't know if they were the first to do it, but they, they made it to great effect was full page spreads okay so you would have as i alluded to with jack kirby you would have the silver surfer coming off the page in a full page spread coming at you that was unique and different and eventually they got into the full two page spread where it's basically the stories across the fold in in the comic that was unheard of that was unheard of at that time for anything like that to happen because pages Think, remember what I said about inkers and artists and letterers and pencilers? They got paid per page, okay? And the publishers expected lots of writing and lots of artwork on those pages. Just to have one big spread on a single page or even two pages, it felt like to the publishers they were getting cheated. Still to do the work. And sometimes letters were getting paid by the letter. <laughs> so you'd see some things 
some dialogue would run on forever, and you're like, why is this? He was getting paid by the letter, as many letters as possible on the page. It makes sense. So Marvel took that single-page spread and the double-page spread eventually and ran with it. They also ran with the, with the multi-story arc, and I alluded to that a little bit with Stan Lee, but you have to think about what that means. It means that nothing was wrapped up in, in a single box because it couldn't be. It made you think. And this is the progression of comic books. In the Golden Age, we might as well talk about the ages. So the Golden Age ran from the beginning of comics, effectively with um, Batman, Superman starting it. And the Shadow, again, was not a superhero comic, so it didn't really count in the same way. Um, but it, from the start of Batman, Superman era, approximately, there's no hard and fast dates up through the mid-1950s with the comic book code. So that was the golden age. Very conservative, very uh, bland, basically, but it had to start somewhere. So the Silver Age begins with the Marvel Age, appropriately so. Again, not till later was this even discussed. They, don't, they weren't at the time saying, oh, we're in the Silver Age of comics. Nobody was saying that at the time. It was always in the retrospective look back that they figured that out. So the Marvel Age technically could have started, as we said, with Fantastic Four number one, um, I or Hulk, num- Incredible Hulk number one, or even Spider-Man Amazing Fantasy number 15. I point to Spider-Man because I think it was a more lasting impact on the, the genre. But you could start it a couple months earlier with Fantastic Four number one. Regardless of where you started, it's, that's the beginning of the Silver Age. And the Silver Age ran approximately to the late 70s, early 80s, okay? Everybody has a slightly different uh, cutoff point for that. Then you went into the Bronze Age um, shortly after that, and and we'll we'll get into the Bronze Age in a later uh, podcast, but the Bronze Age was the follow-up from there. Bronze Age is mostly modern age uh, for the most part. Um, There hasn't been a post-Bronze Age necessarily at this point, although it's probably high time that there is, and I may define it for us later as a separate uh, epoch just so you have understanding what we're talking about. So the Silver Age is when Marvel really came into its own, okay? And we talked about letterers and inkers and writers and artists and, and all those people that contribute to making a comic book. Well, prior to the early 1970s, most of those people's names were never in the book, Okay. So you didn't get credit for it except internally. So if you, and remember, the the publishers owned all of the work. So it wasn't like you could take your work and say, well, I did that. Well, you could. You could pull out a comic book and say, I did that. But you really had no proof. There was nothing in writing. Now, it was a small fraternity back then, so people knew what other people did. And it, it was common knowledge for the most part. But if you're a, you're a lowly letterer, you're not getting a lot of love, and you're certainly not getting a lot of people going, oh, i got to have that letter on my team. Most people weren't saying that. So they didn't get a lot of credit. Uh, and sometimes a writing team, it was a writing team. It wasn't a single individual writer. It was a group of writers, and the head writer would get the writing credit. Uh, sometimes it was one person. Sometimes it was multiple people. So in the early 1970s, there was a gentleman named Marv Wolfman, okay? And a, he was a writer for one of the Marvel comics. And... They decided to put all of the contributors in that comic in the front as having written uh, art, all, all the things that we've talked about. Well, 
Marv Wolfman got in trouble with the Comic Code Authority because the Comic Code Authority dictated you could not have anybody, you could not have any, the word Wolfman or wolves or werewolves or vampires or a um, multitude of other things. I, I've talked about the Comic Book Code Authority in previous episodes, so I'm not going to dwell on it here. But there's so many things you weren't allowed to have. And they saw Wolfman and immediately assumed that it was, you know, they were trying to get the werewolf in. Well, they he had to go and prove, Marvel in association with that, had to prove that that was his real name. His name was Marv Wolfman. You know, we're just putting this guy's name in, which it was. I mean, comic people were a little weird back then, and obviously they thought they were mess, getting messed with, but that, that ended up being the, the case. So Marv Wolfman's name goes in, and suddenly you see a proliferation of Marvel books that start to put all of the contributors in. Starts a revolution. So now these guys can kind of get credit for their work because they're in print. It's right there. It says my name. So I don't have to say, yeah, I did that, and you just have to believe me. It's right there. You don't have to take my word for it. It's in print. So that that opened up a lot of things. But it, it wasn't so much that Marvel was trying to give credit to these other people because they were perfectly happy with system, the system that was in place. They were trying to do something different and call attention, and, and the editor wanted to give his people um, more credit. But it just opened up the floodgates. Now, remember I said Wolfman was something you weren't allowed to say. The Comic Code Authority got relaxed after that, okay? And werewolves started to become popular. Vampires became popular. Uh, you know, zombies. All those things you couldn't have started to make their way into Marvel Comics. DC never dwelled in there. Not a lot, anyway. But Marvel said, hey, here's an opportunity. Here's the horror genre that we had in, in the early 50s that we haven't had for decades and it's popular again in movies and TV and books. We're gonna we're gonna popularize it again. So you got Blade the Vampire Hunter, you got Werewolf by Night, you know, you got all these things. Dracula made he he had his own book for a while. You got these things into the Marvel comics, and that changed the genre again. They're well done stories. They weren't just rehashing of Bram Stoker's work. They weren't just rehashing of some of the early 20s and 30s movies. These were standalone stories on their own that advanced the Marvel Universe. And again, make no mistake, this was the Marvel Universe. And that's key to remember. These characters interacted. At one time, Storm and Wolverine interacted with Dracula, and they were able to kill Dracula, or so they thought. That happened in the Marvel Comics, okay? That sounds like an offbeat type of thing to do, but it actually happened. And and that's something you couldn't expect in a DC type of universe. It didn't it didn't work that way. Marvel was willing to take chances. They were the underdog. They were a scrappy underdog. And they knew it. So they were they were not afraid to say, We're gonna do this because we don't have a choice. We have to garner market share and readership to make us survive. So we they would. So that's how that all came about. But all of this kind of dovetails into each other because if one thing hadn't happened, if Marv Wolfman hadn't been named Marv Wolfman, you might not have had the controversy. And the controversy might not have led to other editors saying, yeah, we need to get more publicity for our people. And you might not still have those people's names listed in the front of the comic books. So it's interesting how it comes about. It's also interesting how it snowballed in the Marvel way. Now, you see it in DC Comics now 
commonly and has been for decades. But they didn't do that before, and then they started to have to do it. Marvel forced them to do those things. The the two-page spread, the single-page spread, that was something forced upon the other comic publishers, specifically DC, that they started to have to do. Okay? So when we talk about these things, you need to remember they didn't exist. So if you pull out a comic book today, it looks different than a comic from that era in how in almost every aspect because of what it was versus what it is today. Okay? So Silver Age was an important, important part. One last story on the Silver Age. So the federal government came to Marvel and wanted to do an anti-drug campaign during the Nixon era. And they wanted Spider-Man to have an anti-drug message. Well, you couldn't mention drugs in the comic books. Couldn't mention them. So... Stan Lee made a decision, we're not going to submit this comic for approval by the Comic Code Authority, because they knew they could not get it approved, even though the federal government had come to them. The Comic Code Authority was separate from the government, so it wasn't a government agency, it was self, self-policing. So he just didn't get the code on it. Now you have to understand at that time, today there is no comic book code anymore. It hasn't been for over a decade. But at that time, you didn't, you couldn't publish a comic book and get it on the shelves unless it had the Comic Code Authority stamp on it. Couldn't do it. And he did it anyway. He did it because he believed in the message, and it was an opportunity. I truly believe this was Stan. It was an opportunity for him to do something different that hadn't been done, that hadn't been done. And he got approval, and he did it. That wasn't a particularly great issue. It It wasn't wonderful, but it was the first time that had been discussed in a comic book since the Comic Code Authority came out. It was the first time. That's a pretty significant deal, and Marvel was willing to do that. Lastly, what made Marvel different? With the exception of Captain America in the 40s, there weren't many sidekicks in the Marvel Universe. You had a lot in the DC Universe, Batman and Robin. Captain America had Bucky. But this all stems from Stan Lee didn't like sidekicks. Didn't like them, didn't want them, didn't need them. Now, I'm not talking about partnering Captain America and the Falcon. That's not a sidekick. That's his. That's an adult partner um, part, fighting crime. Uh, Bucky was a kid sidekick. Not in the movie, but in the, in the comics. Robin's obviously a kid sidekick. Stan Lee didn't come to Captain America until the third issue in 1942. So... It wasn't something he was involved with. He was a 17-year-old intern, effectively, at the Timely Comics at that time. So it wasn't something he had any say into. He later became a writer for the comic book. But, you know, Bucky was already established, and it's hard to remove something that's already there when it's well-liked. And that wasn't the first issue that came out. So he didn't go the uh, Captain Marvel Shazam route where they had a whole family of sidekicks. Because that came, kind of became stupid, you know? So you didn't see sidekicks in the Marvel Universe. Uh, certainly not the Marvel Silver Age Universe. And I think that's a key difference. It's subtle, but you don't think about it. But try to think of a single Marvel character who had a kid sidekick. And you can't. Not in the modern, or at least in the Silver Age and beyond. You can't think of anything because it didn't exist. I give the exception of the X-Men and Wolverine with Jubilee. Not so much a sidekick, she was an X-Man, 
or Kitty Pride. So there was a little bit of that, but they weren't exactly you know, sidekicks. But I can see if somebody would make that argument that there's some similarity there. But by that time, uh, Stan Lee had been out of uh, the editor-in-chief job. So those came about without his involvement. Uh, so in, things have changed dramatically since then. So lots of cha- lots of things changed. Lots of interesting portions of the Marvel Universe are different. And I think that's the key into our next uh, foray which is um, the 1970s and 1980s of, of Marvel Comics. So we're going to touch on the late Silver Age into the Bronze Age uh, in the next installment of Marvel Tales, a Marvel retrospective. Thank you for joining me. I'm Chad. I'll talk to you next time. This has been a Hannah Tree production.